Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Sanjot Sahin is the co-founder and CMO of Aliva Health. After working in high growth tech startups, both co-founders had struggled with their own mental health and had negative experiences when it came to finding suitable support. The private and public mental health care options have a number of associated challenges. So Sanjot and his co-founder created Aliva Health to solve this problem. With people giving a large chunk of their lives to work and work often being a stressor for mental health issues, Believers see a huge opportunity for employers to take more responsibility in supporting their employees with their mental health. Aliva focuses on providing people with the support for all of their mental health needs, whilst also helping them to build up their emotional resilience. They also care about creating a platform that supports therapists and their needs too. Hey Sancho, great to have you on the show. Hi great, thanks for having me. No problem. Um, so I, I guess I always like to talk a bit about the, the guest background and I saw your, you know, very experienced head of VP of marketing in the, in the likes of Hotjar and Typeform. So could you share kind of the moments or steps that led you to leaving that world and, and, and entering into building a mental health startup? Yeah, uh, good question. So, so I guess I kind of fell into that world and then fell out of that world. Um, so before getting into startups and marketing, I was kind of loosely in the kind of creative space. I do a lot of like freelance photography, uh, content writing and things like that for different, different companies, you know, hotel websites and, and things like that. Um, and then I moved to Barcelona about 15 years ago now, and it was the kind of birth of the startup ecosystem there. There are just a few startups kind of copying the Silicon Valley way of doing things. And now it's a thriving community, of course. Um, but I joined a, an early stage startup at the time that, uh, ended up, honestly, when I started the job, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I didn't speak much Spanish and I had this very confusing interview in Spanish and obviously thought I'm not going to get this. I don't <laughs> even know what it is I'm applying for. Uh, got a phone call, got the job. I think that that's what they said in Spanish and, uh, and then just kind of ended up, um, doing marketing for this, for this company. Um, and that's, that was the beginning of, of that journey. Um, and then, that's kind of my career just, uh, went from there. And, you know, I had the, I was lucky to join some really great startups at a very early stage and, you know, go through some really interesting challenges and lots of learnings. Um, and how I kind of fell out of it again is I, it was actually at the beginning of sort of first wave of the pandemic. Um, I was VP of marketing at Hotjar at that point, great company, um, but I just found myself complaining to myself and my, unfortunately for her, to my partner, um, quite a lot. I, you know, I just felt dissatisfied. Um, and I just found myself complaining, uh, quite a lot. And then I kind of said to myself, well, hang on, you've got a good job. Uh, you know, great salary, good people, great, great company, all of that kind of stuff, but still, something doesn't feel quite quite right. So I just knew I had to make a change because I didn't want to be that person who just complains about being in a very privileged situation. Um, so I decided I wanted to do something else. And I was going one of two different directions. So one was start a glamping business, 
So completely get out of tech and and buy a little bit of land and do something very kind of like hands-on and and low-key. Um, still want to do that one day, by the way. <laughs> and the other route was to go to something much earlier stage uh, and kind of get out of this kind of 30 million ARR stage of the company where you're kind of talking about organizational structure and OKRs and, and things like this and get to, back to building something like I did with the team uh, early on at Typeform. Um, and it just so happened that at that time, an ex-colleague and a current friend of mine introduced me to, who's now my co-founder, a guy called Javi, who previously co-founded a very successful startup called Travel Park. Um, and basically said, you guys should meet. It sounds like you've got some things in common. Turns out we both have very similar mental health journeys. Um, we were looking to do something from scratch again. And fast forward, that's where, um, that's how we came together to, to start Oliva. So I never went into it thinking I'm going to be a founder, but I knew I wanted early stage. I knew I wanted to build something from, from scratch again. Got it. And you, you kind of mentioned you both had similar mental health journeys. Like, can you, can you expand on that a little bit more? Like, were there some personal experiences that led you to discovering that space and some of the challenges that are associated with like the mental health sector? Yeah. Um, so the story I told for a long time, um, was my story of my own personal professional burnout, let's say. And that, that happened at Typeform. And what I always say is it, it was never because of Typeform. It was because of me, the lack of understanding I had of myself, you know, the lack of ability to, to create healthy boundaries and, and keep those healthy boundaries. All of that in the pressure cooker environment of a very fast moving startup with all of the pressures that come along with that and doing most things for the first time was quite frankly, it was, it was a recipe for burnout. And that's, that's what happened. I was actually one of the lucky ones, especially when I talked to my co-founder. I won't tell his story for him, but essentially he got himself into a pretty dark place as well while scaling his startup uh, travel park. And again, for similar reasons, not because of the company, but because of, you know, just not knowing how to set those boundaries essentially and not knowing uh, himself well enough. So the experience of burnout was the story I told for a long time, you know, about my mental health, which continues to be a part of my story. And that was kind of the pivot point where I started seeking support from a professional. I, I found a therapist, took a while to find the right one. Um, and that's been an incredible journey. And, you know, I feel mentally more healthy today, today than I ever have. But the journey continues. Um, almost a year ago today, my, my sister died. Um, and, you know, that kind of challenge thrown into your life um, when you don't really expect it is a real test of your, your mental health. Um, so my story continues, right? You know, what used to be quite singular in terms of my experience is now, now has a very significant layer added on. And if we talk again in a year, in five years, in 10 years, I'm sure there'll be plenty more added to that story. So, so yeah, it was, it's an important mission we're on. Like I, I, I feel what other people struggle with. Uh, my story is just one of many. Uh, and it's just incredible when you start talking to people what you realize people people go through just as normal life quite frankly 
hundred percent. Yeah. And like one, thank you for sharing. And, and secondly, definitely, I, I think, uh, yeah, mental health is a, is a continuous state that you're in, um, rather yeah. than like a set an event, like a one-off event or something that went wrong and you fixed it. And that's like, you know, over and done with for the meanwhile, it's, it's an, on, it's an ongoing part of you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so exactly. I just wanted to get your kind of opinions and thoughts on, uh, you know, the topic of mental health more broadly before we speak about Oliva and, um, yeah, if, if we look over the last like two, three years, obviously you've been running a mental health business, um, but also I'm sure been learning more and more about the, the sector and the space. Within, let's say, the UK, if we focus more on, on that area, like what, what trends have you seen when it comes to like general mental health within the population? Like, do you think it's improving? Do you think uh, the awareness around it is getting better or is it kind of compounding with certain, like all the events that have been happening over the last couple of years? Like what trends are you typically seeing at a high level? Yeah, great question. Um, so the caveat is I'm by no means, I think like everybody, we're witnessing things happen so quickly, right? So things are changing very quickly. But yeah, my my view on this is pre-pandemic, there was a very big problem when it came to mental health um, and a growing epidemic, let's say, you know, mental health. And basically you could correlate that with the increasing busyness of the world our lives, um, you know, the increasing choice that we have in lives, which sounds like something very privileged, which it is when you look at the macro. But when you zoom in, it causes a lot of stress. It causes a lot of anxiety. You know, it's a lot of complexity. Um, So that was happening pre-pandemic. Mental health was almost like a silent um, pandemic in in itself. When the pandemic hit, it was the first time in, in our generations, I would say, where everybody had this immediate shared problem, you know, in a very concentrated moment of time. Um, And what that meant was, for the first time in a long time, huge groups of people uh, felt comfortable or at least were forced into raising their hand and saying, I'm not doing okay, to be be frank. Like, I'm locked at home. you know, I haven't seen my friends or my family. I'm worried about people. I have no idea what the state of the world is going to be. And people would start raising their hands and saying, I, I'm not doing so well. The impact of that, the positive impact of that, is that it dramatically decreased stigma around the topic about talking about mental health, because this is how stigma is reduced. reduced. It's, it's, it's a movement, you know, um, or it's something very gradual over time. But this is a case of it being something quite quick doesn't mean stigma's completely been removed and it varies culture by culture. But what we saw is this great kind of decrease in in stigma around the topic. With that, you see more people looking for solutions to help and support the people around them with mental health. And that could be an individual saying to a family member, hey, like, why don't you try therapy? Or, you know, why don't you talk to someone? It could be as simple as that, you know, just opening a conversation because now there's this space to do that. Or it could be, you know, more in, in, in my space, businesses um, saying, actually, we think it is part of our responsibility to offer support to our employees because we know that uh, life is, is pretty crazy, you know, so, so all of us will need some support at some point. So that's kind of the good that's, that's come out of that. But again, the journey continues, right? You know, we thought we had problems with the pandemic. Uh, now we've got the threat of nuclear annihilation and, you know, um, God knows what else. Um, it's it's difficult not to 
be obsessed with our news feeds and just see this endless scroll of uh, of doomsday news. On top of that, we're dealing with everything in our personal lives, as as always. Um, life's not easy necessarily right now. Um, so I think this problem is far from being uh, solved. Um, and we need to find ways to kind of accept and navigate our new normal and uh, and accept that it's okay to be not okay from time to time. Definitely. And uh, my next question was going to be linked to that. Like when you're, well, even if you're not, actually, if you feel fine if, or if you don't feel great, um, if we take the kind of like employers providing a solution off the table for the moment and just look at, um, you know, if, if I wanted to get some mental health support today, and what my my options are as an individual, which I assume mm. is kind of like public through the NHS or privately. Um, what yeah, what do those routes look like, and, and what are some of the challenges with those? Maybe it's like uh, delays and how long it takes to get through to someone, or like costs involved. Mm. Yeah, exactly this. So so I would say so speaking more specifically about Europe uh, in the US, it's you know it's highly insurance led, um, but it comes with a lot of its own challenges, but. Speaking uh, more specifically about Europe, you essentially have three options, I would say. So one is, or four, one is to take the public route and use your public health care to, to access therapy. This is very well known to be pretty awful because not enough investment is going into that. There's, a, there's an initiative in the UK to, to get mental health care at parity with physical health care, but it's widely condemned as, you know, being very unsuccessful so so far, but at least the intention is there, I guess. Um, but essentially, you know, you get onto the long waiting lists in the UK, it can be up to 12 months um, to get a, an assessment session with the NHS. There are horrible stories of people committing suicide before they even get their first um, session. Uh, and of course, if, if you're seen as lower severity, you're going to be pushed even further down the list, et cetera, et cetera. Add on top of that all of like the horrible admin and bureaucracy and yeah. referrals that you need to get, all of that kind of stuff is just a horrible, horrible experience. So that's one, the public route. Two is um, the private route. So you reach out, you know, you Google therapist in London, therapist in Barcelona, whatever it might be. I've, I've been there and done that myself. And what you get is like a, basically a Google feed of different therapists. You go in, they've got like a horrible WordPress website because these are not people who build businesses and websites and brands, you go in and, you know, it might have a little picture and a little bio about them. And then you have to email them or phone them up and you don't get a reply for a while, or maybe you do, but you know, you're not really sure what you're getting into because you're basically going by a profile picture. And of course you have no idea like what the best option is for you. Why would you, I, I wouldn't know what heart surgeon to choose for yeah. myself. And I don't know what therapist to really choose for myself. Um, and then what we see there is that when people take that route, generally 70% of the time, people get the initial match wrong. And that's very unsurprising. You know, they just don't feel that chemistry with the first person they find. And what that leads to is most people just drop out at that stage because you've already spent a few hundred pounds or euros getting to that point. You've emotionally offloaded things. And then at the end of it, it's like, well, actually, this isn't working out. I'm not, not really feeling this relationship. So... Of course, you just think, well, therapy isn't right for me. So that's option number two. Option number three is um, maybe you're lucky enough to have private medical insurance with your company or you pay for it yourself. And often they have like add-on sessions and things like this. 
And I would say it's a, it's a small enhancement from what you get publicly and privately. Uh, it's a little bit easier to kind of navigate, but still generally you have to get referrals and there are limits to sessions and, you know, there's no kind of like transparency or, or model behind it. So it's still not ideal. And then the fourth option is you just think, well, <laughs> I can't be bothered. I'm not <laughs> going to do anything. And you just continue. You just continue as you are, which of course is not a great outcome. Yeah. And I think if you look at all those options, they're all, yeah, like you said, they all come with different challenges and especially the first two, I see those as quite reactive. Like there's a problem big enough. You're either going to go and wait on the wait list with the NHS. or so you're going to go spend quite a lot of money and potentially churn through a few different therapists. You find the right one, which you have to be in a certain situation to be able to even afford that route. So it's quite, quite challenging. Um, and I, I, obviously in these conversations, everyone focuses rightfully so on the patient, but there's also the therapist as well. And you start to touch on that. And there's, I understand there's challenges on that side of the fence as well. Like it's not all dream for them where they've got lines of patients waiting for them and everything's sorted. Like you said, are they all kind of typically like small business owners trying to set up their own thing? Like you said, market themselves, have no idea how to do that. So it's actually quite clunky on their side as well. Yeah, exactly. We've talked to so many therapists because, you know, part of what we do is solve problems for the therapist as well. And there's a couple of main problems they they face. So one is they hate the admin. You know, they're, they're not marketers. They're not business people. They just want to provide people with quality care and not think about setting up websites and all of this kind of stuff, doing invoicing. So that's one. And two, they can feel very alone because it's a very lonely job. You're talking to people all day, but you're the professional in that case. And, you know, they need someone, someone to go and talk to. They need a community. They need colleagues. And often in the therapy world, that doesn't exist so much. Um, so there is such a thing as therapist burnout, uh, which is very unsurprising. You know, if you're just listening to people's problems all day and you don't have a way to vent yourself, and you don't have a community around you, that's going to take its toll. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. Um, yeah, and I just thought I'd, I would want to make sure we did explore that angle as well, because I think quite often gets I've overlooked naturally with the, the more kind of like the patient focus. Um, final question before we talk about Oliva is... Um, so, you know, but based on what you said, I, I think it seems like, you know, I'd love to see the government doing more, but ultimately that's going to take a lot of time and they have a huge amount of pressure. So that's not going to change in the short to medium term. And then, you know, I think individuals will also be struggling with cost of li- living, uh, you know, inflation going up, all of those pressures on people. So I'm not to put words in your mouth, but do you see the, the employer as the real opportunity to help, um, improve people's mental health? Like that's the main route that will actually be, most likely to have the biggest difference to to people? I do, I do. Um, so I think it's something like 48% of the UK population is in employment, something along those lines. And then the other 52% is the unemployed, the retired, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? And children, <laughs> uh, importantly. Um, so when you think of it like that, if you imagine that, providing mental health support was just table stakes for any business. That's a huge section of the population that's taken care of with with hopefully high quality solutions funded by the employer. And I could talk a lot about why the employer should fund it, you know, why it's a benefit to them, both from a business point of view and a culture, cultural point of view. But basically, if you if you imagine that to be the case, that would free up a lot of resources for public health care and maybe the privates to come in and um, 
the private private solutions to come in and um, you know support it as well, but to to help the other part of society as well. You know, quite frankly, if if I'm employing somebody, giving them a good salary, and you know, making a for profit business, etc., uh, and t- taking you know a big chunk of their life to help us build this business. I don't think I should leave it to the NHS to support them with their mental health care, especially if if their stress comes from work. But that's just one small thing. But like, especially, you know, it's it's kind of like, yeah, bad analogy. But you know, if you're if you're a local pub and you have a you have an event uh, and you have people outside your pub, the council won't come and clean up the the rubbish. You know, you'll have to clean it up as a business because you've kind of put that onto the onto the pavement. So so employers have a responsibility. And I think if we took that responsibility seriously, then that would leave a lot of space for um, organizations like the NHS, which you and I probably know are, are pretty fantastic and privileged organizations to have, um, to, to take care of those who aren't in employment um, and hopefully have more money to increase the quality and actually really get to that parity of, of physical healthcare and mental healthcare being looked after equally. Pretty idealistic, I, I think, but uh, but it is something I believe. Yeah, no, it is. It is definitely something that I'm seeing, like from a recruiter's perspective. Like I see it as one. Generally, companies seem to be caring and understanding the importance of, of supporting their employees in that way. Um, and secondly, you know, uh, also seeing it as a differentiator. Like com- people do care about having that kind of support and actually ha- offering that as an employer is a differentiator for you. You're potentially choosing like which company to go and work for next. Um, Cool. So, um, on the, thank you for setting that kind of context and scene. Um, so it'd be great actually, if you could just explain what Oliver Health does and yeah, uh, how you go about helping people with their mental, mental wellbeing. Amazing. So this is the plug part, right? Go for it. Yeah. This, this, <laughs> nice. Uh, okay. So Oliver is the way we describe ourselves is proper mental health support and emotional growth for employees. So to break that down a little bit proper mental health support because um, we offer the full spectrum of support for pretty much any need that somebody might have, all the way from, let's call it day-to-day stressors or the kind of coughs and colds of mental health, which is what our chief clinical officer calls it, all the way to the things that might make it struggle to get out of bed in, in the morning. So so we can we can offer help with all of that. And we do that through having an incredible and varied pool of um, practitioners with different experience, uh, different modalities, um, different backgrounds, uh, et cetera, different ages, all of that kind of stuff. We have our own proprietary care model, which is based only on evidence-based practices. And we have an in-house care team that's accountable for the whole process. We're not a marketplace. We don't just connect you. We're not just a bit of technology that connects you with with a, uh, a practitioner. Um, and then on top of that, there are a lot of other things that we, that we double down on to make sure that we're truly proper mental health support, because quite frankly, there are a lot of pseudoscientific solutions out there, you know, and marketplace models and things like this, which I personally don't think are really fit for purpose. Um, so that's the proper mental health support. And that's for their, um, whatever issue you might have, any challenge you might have, be it something that comes from the past, trauma, whatever it might be, or be it something that happens to you now or in the future, unless, you know, when, when my sister died, I obviously, I needed to talk to somebody, right. And I never expected it. So we know that things can happen at any moment. And then the emotional growth side is more proactive. 
So think of it like going to a gym and signing up for a spin class one day, a yoga class the next day for your physical health. Um, we offer tools and, um, and formats to help people be proactive about their mental health. So workshops, classes, talks, things like that. Um, to really help build resilience and build that emotional growth so that the next time you're in a difficult situation, which let's face it, will happen. That's just life. We just manage it a little bit better. And that might be 1% better. It might be 10% better. It might be 90% better, depending on your, on your baseline. But if we can just help people navigate life, the ups and downs a little bit better and be more fulfilled, then that's a big thing for us. And then finally, the final part of my description was for employees. And it's because of what we touched on earlier. We, we sell our solution to companies that offer it as a, uh, a benefit to their, um, to their employees, much like they would physical health insurance and, you know, pension schemes and all of this kind of stuff. And of course, you know, we work with great companies like Confido Talent, um, that truly believe that supporting their, their employees' mental health care is just one core pillar to, to making sure people are fulfilled and, and productive as well. Awesome. Yeah. And I think, um, that second part is super important to me is that proactive management aspects. I think, you know, when I think back to me as a, as a school kid, like you're, you're, you're educated on your physical health, like you, the fundamentals or core foundations, like good diet, exercise, but mental health, it just isn't talked yeah. about. And then it kind of in later life becomes more of a reactive thing, but actually it's a proactive thing. And it's going to probably have the biggest long-term positive impact on people. Um, exactly. Yeah, you're right. I mean, <laughs> I think back to school and, you know, we would play football and rugby and all of this kind of stuff, but never did we talk about how to manage um, stress and anxiety and, you know, what might be coming our way. We never talked about any of that stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're just unprepared when these events do hit you or, or something starts to build up and, and yeah. Exactly. Um, so I, I want to take you back to the, the early days. Um, you mentioned obviously yourself and your co-founder, Javi, like both had similar journeys, had a, an interest in, in fixing some of the problems associated in the, you know, the mental health support space. Um, but neither of you, obviously, to my understanding anyway, were like qualified in any way in kind of mental health. Um, so yeah. what, what did those early days look like? Was it a case of, you know, a lot of used research and validation or was it actually finding someone like the chief clinical officer that you mentioned to make sure that everything you're doing was backed up by, by science? Yeah. Um, yeah, really good question. So, so this is actually one of the reasons we stand behind proper mental health in our value prop, let's, let's say, because actually what we see from most other providers is they're all kind of tech startup people like us. You know, they've seen an opportunity in the market. It's, you know, it's a hugely exploding market at the moment. Um, but then they've kind of stitched together everything themselves. And I would never trust myself or my co-founder to, to own the care side of, of our, of our business. So one of the first hires we made and, and definitely the first senior hire that we made was a chief clinical officer. Uh, she's called Dr. Sarah Betab. She has 37 years, I believe, experience in the field. Um, you know, she was one of the first people to introduce CBT, um, therapies into the NHS, like incredible background, um, worked very closely with businesses, you know, just knows this space and has been part of shaping this space as well. So we, from day one, we knew we needed somebody we could trust, somebody with the, the experience who could really establish our care model and own that bit of the, the business. 
And, and that's exactly what Sarah has done. And then through that, we've now got our own in-house care team. Uh, we work with a large pool of freelance practitioners, but we treat them like they're part of the team. Uh, we build communities around them. We we have um, you know strict recruitment processes and feedback loops and supervision, all of this kind of stuff. So yeah, to answer your question, yeah, myself and Javi, that's not our background. And we never wanted to fake it till we make it, if you know what I mean. We needed to get somebody who had done this many times before and and could really own that part of the business. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you will be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, completely makes sense. And um, I know from my interactions um, with your business that you are obviously actually not just very thorough in vetting your your therapist, but actually also the potential customers as well, which I actually quite high valued as a business owner. Um, but I wonder if you could share like what does an ideal customer profile look like to you? Like what is it you're looking for from a company before you actually do allow them to sign up? Yeah, uh, so... So we've made mistakes, right? So we've, um, you know, we're, we're a relatively early stage startup. And of course, you know, we want to get going. We want customers, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but we've onboarded companies before where we've learned that we, they're bringing us on as a kind of band-aid for an otherwise toxic culture and seeing us like a check in a box. Like, so they can just say to their team, we've done this. And therefore, you know, that's that bit of culture taken care of and we've learned we learned very quickly that when we're seen as the band-aid it doesn't work the relationship doesn't work we need to work with companies that truly believe that they should support the well-being of their team and also believe that it's a journey and wherever their culture is today even if it is toxic they need to be committed to to making changes and improvements um, over time but if they're not committed to that and they just want to say to their team, you know, we've done this, therefore we care about you. It, it doesn't work. So, so we learned that quite early. And what that means is now that when we talk to prospective, uh, prospective um, companies, we're really looking out for that. You know, we ask questions, we, we interview as much as they interview us. And we, we try and understand, you know, why are you looking for a solution? Um, you know, how would you like to work with a partner like, like us? And it doesn't mean we need the world from them. It's not like, you know, we need to kind of really add to their jobs significantly, but we just need to see that they're taking this seriously. And now through that, we've just, we just work with some, uh, incredible companies, um, you know, where we see super high engagement rates and just beautiful cultures flourish where, where you can just see people sharing stories and, uh, um, and really encouraging each other to, to just be a little bit better every every day it's just a learning exercise um and and that's great to see and ultimately that's good for business as well because there is such a thing as good revenue as and bad revenue um and and you know i'd much rather go a little bit slower and have mostly good revenue rather than go faster and have lots of bad revenue and um and just not have that customer fit 100 and, and to that good good revenue bad revenue analogy i imagine 
the bad revenue is, is more of a short term anyway. Like you might see spiking growth with the customer side, exactly. but I imagine those companies that are bad um, are also the ones that probably churn quite a lot and, and drop off. So exactly. Makes sense. Yeah, these are the ones that don't respond to emails and, you know, they, they, uh, yeah, they, exactly. They churn, they churn. So, you know, look, if we're not going to kind of do this together, then there's nobody else we can do this with. So <laughs> it just doesn't work. And uh, to look at the kind of employees like user journey on the platform. So yeah, hypothetically, a company signs up and they they go live on your platform um, and employees working there. Like what what does their first interaction with the platform look like? How do you make sure they're getting, you know, the right care? um, And like, how does that kind of ongoing relationship with Aliva look like? Yeah. So, so the way it works is we've got a pretty simple and quick setup process. So, um, what we usually do is we start with a bit of a, an announcement to the company, you know, be it the, the leader of the company announcing asynchronously that they're now working with Oliva. We might sometimes do a presentation for bigger companies in an all hands meeting, for example, but something that kind of puts a flag in the ground and says, you know, we're taking this seriously and this is why we want to offer you this incredible benefit. And it really is a big thing for companies to, to fund this. Like I really respect all of the companies that, that choose to do this. It's, it's a big thing. Um, so we do that. And then from that point, everybody in the team has on-demand access. So they can just log in. They can do that through Slack. If the company uses Slack, it's basically just an entry point into our own proprietary platform, or they can do it uh, on the platform directly going through our website. And no one has to raise their hand and ask HR, can I book a session? Can I do this? They have on-demand access. And HR or leadership or anybody uh, doesn't know when people are using it. What we For transparency, we do provide um, engagement reports when there's enough data so that HR knows um, from all of our headcount how many people are using this platform uh, each month, but they will never know who specifically or even at a department level who's using it or anything, anything like that. Um, and then, yeah, you log in. And then you have a few different options. You can, you can start with therapy if you want to get started with therapy. Um, you know, if you're pretty convinced, you just need to fill in a, a 10 minute survey to get started. We ask those questions so that we can get you a really good match so that you don't fail 70% of the time with that match. In fact, we, we have a 98% success rate and it's because we focus a lot on that first interaction. And then you get going with your therapist. We match you. If you like them, you continue. If you don't, uh, which doesn't happen often, but if you don't, we'll get you changed to somebody new easily. Um, you can also do more proactive things, like you can join a class, a talk, um, where you join with a group of people and learn more general skills around mental health and hear people's stories. Um, and there are a couple of other low-friction ways, like if you're not quite ready to get started, maybe you've never done therapy before, you've got a few questions, you can book something called a check-in session which is just a one-off 60-minute call with one of our professionals. And you can you can talk, you can get something off your chest. Like I've been arguing with my partner recently and I'm just super stressed about that. Like I'm really angry. Or you can actually say, look, I've never done therapy, no idea if this is for me. Can you walk me through what this might look like? And that's a good way to do that. And then we have a couple of other things like you can write to a therapist, for example, if you don't want to jump on a video call and they'll give you a meaningful response back. So we try and make it as frictionless as possible. Um, and, and it's worth saying we're making a lot of improvements to the platform. So actually like, you know, like the navigation should, should improve over time, uh, with user feedback, but, um, 
yeah, we just try and make it as frictionless as possible, reduce the stigma, just make it a part of your normal day-to-day life. Got it. Got it. And um, to talk about uh, funding for a moment, like you you raised quite a large you know, seed round earlier this year, 5 million. Mm. Um, what, what difference has that made? What, what, what has that money allowed you to, to do with the business? Yeah, so we... We've raised two rounds so far. So, so, so myself and my co-founder, we put in the initial kind of seed money ourselves, just just a little bit to get ourselves off the ground and prove to ourselves we could build something. Uh, we could get a group of top quality uh, therapists together and deliver an end-to-end product. And that was proof of concept, kind of B2C model. Um, and what that allowed us to do was get funding from a great firm called Moonfire um, for our pre-seed round, got a couple of million from them, and that allowed us to hire the next batch of roles, including uh, Dr. Sarah Betap, who I mentioned earlier. So, you know, this allowed us to get to the next stage and start building a proper platform, all of that kind of stuff, but still in a pretty lean way. And then the seed round, um, so a few more million on top, um, this allowed us to start to build out the teams in a bit more of a proper way, let's say. So hire a couple of salespeople, a few more engineers, uh, get people in operations and really start to build proper foundations in the business. But of course, especially in today's market, we want to be cautious with the way that we spend our money. So we haven't just thrown it at people. We're still a relatively small team. We're about 25 people. Um, and it's important to us that we have good runway in the bank because we're not building just software here. Like this is people. Yeah. You know, if we close down in two months, what happens to all of these people in, in care? So we always need to make sure we've got a really healthy runway um, in the bank. And on top of that, just keep kind of building the foundations, but in a very, well, hopefully in a in a smart way. So yeah, what essentially what it enabled was to get a bit more sophisticated with our operations, get a few more care people in, a few more engineers, a few more marketers, that kind of thing. But we're still relatively lean. Understood. And looking forward like a year or two, what are some of the the big priorities that are planned for like, yeah, next year, the year after that? We just want to keep going. We want to keep going. And there's so much we can do and so much we want to do. Uh, this is why it's always interesting when you have limited resources in terms of cash in a bank and you're just desperate to, you know, you can see all of the room for improvement and all of the opportunities. So there's, there's a big list of things that we want to do, but essentially we want to double down on being best in class care. This is really important to us. I really believe that we've managed to get to a point where we offer the best quality in terms of care. And we do that through not only um, what we deliver to the end user, let's say, but also by investing in the care team. So the, the amount of tooling we've created for our therapists just doesn't exist on the market. You know, we're trying to make their lives as easy as possible. We're giving them, you know, the ability to really enhance their care through technology, taking away all of the admin, all of that kind of stuff and making it a nice experience for them as well. We also invest in community work for, uh, for our therapists, you know, like really making them feel like part of the team and supervision, all of this kind of stuff. So we want to double down on that while also doubling down on enhancing that experience for the the end user, for want of a better term. And there's like a million things that we could do there, but I'll I'll summarize it as we want to supercharge care. Um, And technology has this beautiful 
ability to help you take something that was traditionally offline and just make it 10x better. I'll tell you what's happening right now. Like, And this happened at Typeform. Um, it was the same thing. So Typeform, for your listeners, uh, form building tool, essentially. But the problem that it was solving was, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a little bit of rant, but bear with me. Um, <laughs> the problem it was solving pre-Typeform, any form builder online essentially took the offline thing, a paper form, and put it online. So it looked like a PDF. It looked like a piece of paper, but it was digital and you could fill it in digitally. There was just a long list of questions. What the founders of Typeform did was they said, well, hang on, we're online now. So can't we use technology and the fact that we've got a screen and all of that kind of stuff to make this experience a lot better? Why do we just copy paste what existed in the physical world and put that into the digital world? And that's where they came up with one question at a time, beautiful design, you know, like you can fully brand it, all of this stuff you couldn't do with a paper form. That same opportunity exists in the therapy space. So traditionally, offline, you would go to a room and you would have this one-to-one interaction. It's a pretty, pretty good way to do it. But when you take it online, there's a million things you can do to enhance it. You know, why make people take notes? Why not auto-transcribe things for people? Um, you know, and give them analytics on that and give them insights on, on their sessions. So I won't tell you too much, but uh, this, this kind of thing, um, the technology has this beautiful way to, to enhance um, the experience. So really taking a first principles approach. So it's a long way to answer your question, but doubling down on best-in-class care is definitely something we'll continue to invest in. There's huge opportunities to create a properly standout brand. All of the brands, including us at the moment, to be frank, we're all just kind of merging into one. Like everybody looks the same. Everybody's using cautious colors and, you know, uh, wrapping people in cotton wool and, you know, pastel colors and things like this. There's an opportunity to really break through that noise and do some incredible things with, with uh, content. Um, yeah, so it's a little taster, I guess, of, of where we're going. Yeah, yeah, look forward to seeing it. Um, and then <laughs> to talk to you a little bit about your, your yourself as a founder, um, I know you've, you've hold, held leadership roles in, in like high-growth tech companies previously, but what's what's been like the biggest surprise for you becoming a founder of a company versus you know, a leader in a, in a company that's not your own previously? So it's weird. I, it's hard to know what to attribute it to, but I have better boundaries today when it comes to work than I ever did when I was an employee. So even though now it's my own thing and there's more on the line, let's say, you know, I've put my own cash into this. Um, you know, uh, I've put a lot on the line. I'm better at holding my boundaries when it comes to work. And I think that's more, I'm not sure if it's about being a founder. I think it's more just a stage of life and, kind of knowing what makes me more effective. Um, so that, but that surprised me a little bit, I guess. I think if you had told me before becoming a founder, I would have told you all my boundaries will go out the window and yeah. I'll be working every hour under the sun to make this business work. But the switch in my mind is I still want to make this business work and that's my obsession, but I know the best way to get there is not to work every hour under the sun because I'm someone who needs to be able to switch off. I need to be able to think uh, all of that kind of stuff. So, so I've, what surprised me is that I'm better than I thought I would be at, at keeping those boundaries. That's one. Um, I suppose the other one is, is hard work. <laughs> I'm not sure this was a surprise, <laughs> but it's hard. It's, it's, it's tough. Um, there's just 
a million different challenges every day. Uh, it's fun and rewarding when you work your way through those challenges, but it's it's difficult. And you know, you'll know this uh, as a founder as well. It's um, yeah, it's challenging. Definitely is. <laughs> Do you find that? Yeah, all the time, uh, and, and I think it's the challenges change, but there's always something going on that you that needs your attention. It's distracting you, or not even distracting you, but it just absorbs your attention from other stuff that you're, you're doing. So I think that's an ongoing challenge. Um, and you and you kind of touched well. You didn't touch on a specific moment. But you said about kind of like yeah, also really enjoying it. But what's been like a standout moment for you so far? Like, is there something you look back on something that happened? You're like that was a super proud moment, or like you know that that was a standout for me. To be honest, quite a lot. Um, you know, on an initiative level and project level, there's so many things we've done that I'm super proud of. You know, I'm really proud of the podcast the team has created. Um, we're working on something really exciting right now. Um, that's going to be launched soon that I'm very proud of everything we've done in the product and like building the care team. Like I'm really proud of the, 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 the quality of the care team that the, the, you know, Dr. Sarah Baitup and team has, has managed to put together. I'm proud of so much in terms of, you know, what we've actually produced. Um, I mean, it's just incredible. Like, honestly, like I, I just, we reminisce quite a lot when we were just a few people drinking beers and talking about, things we were going to do and like, you know, sticking things together. Um, it, it's amazing what the team has achieved in a short amount of time. But actually it was, uh, you know, I had, um, we had a um, team offsite. Um, we had a team offsite recently and yeah, it was just seeing that team come together, you know, a lot of mission led people, um, people who genuinely, believed in what they're doing one from a personal point of view but also from a professional point of view like they were just just excited to kind of progress but also while pushing this mission forward it's just i don't know just looking at that and looking at the quality and the caliber of the team is is yeah that that definitely made me very proud yeah i'm not surprised and that's something i hear quite often when i ask that question is is when you look around the room or wherever you are and you see the this amazing group of people that are building something special and they all really believe in what they're trying to do that's a really powerful thing to like observe and and be a part of um and linked, uh, I was going to talk about your offsite because just before we jumped on this uh, I, I was seeing some of the pictures coming up on LinkedIn it looked incredible yeah um and my understanding is it's a, you know, it's a remote business. You do have some office space in Barcelona that the team are free to use, but it's, mm. it's a remote first or like remote uh, working setup. And I just wanted to, you know, something that as a recruiter, I'm seeing more and more of makes a lot of sense in terms of giving you access to more talent. But in terms of building like a really productive, collaborative, remote working culture, what, what tips do you have? What advice would you give to, to other founders? Yeah. Um, so we definitely haven't nailed this. Uh, I'm not sure I'm the best person to give advice. <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, but uh, but I'll try. Um, I'll talk about some of our learnings. So first of all, I guess we're a hybrid culture. I don't really know what that means. Still, I don't think anybody does. But essentially, like you said, we have we have an office in central Barcelona, and we have roughly 50% of our team there that. Um, works from home or goes into the office. It's quite a nice space. So, you know, people use it quite a lot. And then the other 50% are either in different locations across Europe or actually the biggest concentration are in, are in the UK and we work, including myself, we work um, remotely most of the time. Actually, our 
head of talent acquisition put together an incredible uh, kind of three-part personas um, for us in the team so that we can understand where each person fits and what they need to 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 make them thrive. Um, and she would be much better at describing her, her work. Uh, she's called Bridie. Um, but essentially created three personas, you know, one being you live next to our office and you like to spend most of the time in the office. Two being you live next to the office, but you like to spend most of your time at home and you like to dip into the office. And then three being you don't live close to an office, you know, you're fully remote. And based on that, we give slightly different benefit packages in terms of budget for co-workings and, and, and things like that. So we try and fit it around the individual. And by the way, you self-select your persona. We don't tell you what you are. You tell us um, what you are. And I think we can only kind of keep enhancing that and keep making sure that we we create the right environment for the different personas. Um, and it's a challenge, I think, because you can end up with this kind of subculture, you know, the ones that go to the office and the ones that don't. So we definitely haven't fully worked it out. And I don't, don't know if we ever will. But um, it's basically that. It's really understanding the different personas, let's say, asking them what they need to be successful and thrive, and then supporting that with tools, resources, benefits, uh, whatever it might be. Yeah, definitely. I'm not sure if that classifies as advice. (laughs) No, I think that's really fair though. That's all I got. (laughs) I don't don't, don't think many people would claim that they've nailed the kind of like remote working setup. And to to your point, I think the most important thing is that you give your employees like flexibility and options. And like you said, you know, you're, you're appealing to three different personas of people there, which I think is the most important thing rather than just saying like, this is what we are. There's one persona that we fit and, and, you know, black and white like that. You, you, yeah, I find the most supportive companies offer flexibility and and they're kind of best of both worlds and you can kind of choose what, what degree you want to go to with that. Um, and you, you know, before we come to the podcast, we were were chatting a bit about your retreat and you brought it up earlier. Um, that's also something I'm seeing more with startups, um, especially remote ones in terms of getting a team together two, three times a year. Could you just share like, you know, how many days are you away for? What are you focusing on during that time away? Is it mainly, like team bonding and it's non-structured activities and just generally get to know each other or is it quite structured in terms of what you're covering in those days? Hmm. So again, we're, we're learning and we treat it like a little product. So every time we do one, we, we, we get a lot of feedback, do a little retrospective, and then we, we define the things that we want to do differently next time and, and the things we want to keep. So they're definitely evolving. Um, so a few of our learnings from that is, the main ROI of doing these events is having people connect one-to-one and as groups and, you know, in person, get to know each other, build relationships. Um, yeah, just, just as humans, right? That That's the main ROI. So if you think of that as the main objective, then you have to build everything around that and everything else is secondary. We used to do it the other way around. So we used to think the main goal is to do working sessions, to get everybody aligned, et cetera. So we used to pack it full of working sessions and all of us, not just the team, but like, you know, us as founders as well, we were exhausted by the end of it. And there was just nothing left in this. And we needed a week just to get over <laughs> it afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, like it, it's very exhausting. So fast forward to the latest one we've done. And we had a few kind of morning sessions to get the team aligned. And the, what we do is we 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 give them pretty much all of the context 
that we produce for ourselves for making strategic decisions. So we look at competitor landscape, we look at our finances in details, you know, where we are. Uh, we do SWOT analysis that we've asked everybody to contribute to. So we we really just try and set the stage with context and off the back of that say, and this is where we're, we're going to try and take things next. So context is really important. But aside from those sessions, this time round, we created a lot of space for free time. Um, so we just had a lot of meals together, barbecues, time by the swimming pool, just very organic time. Like nobody was forced to do anything. Uh, introverts like me could just disappear for an hour and, you know, just, just recharge a little bit, read a book or answer emails, do whatever you want. You know, um, there's no, there's no one size fits all. And, and that was great just to see people creating very organic connections, just doing their thing, you know, personalities coming out, you know, really getting to know each other. So in terms of structure, it's that it's context. So we just try and give as much context, which helps people understand why certain decisions are made. And actually we make them part of those decisions. And then two, the main thing is just to give lots of time to, to connect and build relationships. And that's where the main fruit comes from, let's say. Yeah, I can imagine. And it was fun. Yeah, it looked, yeah. It. it looked really wholesome from the picture I saw. So I'm like, right, actually, need to get yeah, on feed cool. retreat, uh, retreat sort of it. Um, <laughs> Do it. <laughs> final question was, um, and you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, was, um, yeah, uh, Bridie, your head of talent. Um, you know, uh, quite pleased and also surprised to see you brought in a head of talent fairly early on, like about a year and a half into the business, which typically you don't see until maybe series A onwards, like a company investing in like an internal talent function. Um, so two questions, like what made you invest in like a head of talent fairly early on? And, and secondly, like what, what impact has that had on the business? Yeah. So it's, it's a good point that, you know, we did hire relatively early for that position. Um, the first thing to mention is Bridie, um, she looks after talent acquisition, but also HR, you know, and, and she's excellent uh, at that. Um, so, so it's been a game changer for us. So we knew early on that we would be hiring quite a few people, be it a lot of people right now or slow right now and then a lot in the future. But we knew part of our journey is going to be hiring a fair amount of people. We also knew that we're hiring lots of mission-led people. And what comes with mission-led people, such as ourselves, is our baggage, right? You know, generally we've been through something ourselves. So we need to offer people support. We need to make sure we've got a really good environment, psychologically safe environment as we scale things quickly. And that's, that's a challenge. So to have somebody with their head always thinking about that has been a massive relief and a big game changer uh, for us. So not only can we scale talent acquisition at the moments that we need it and, you know, be laser focused on, on the roles that we need and keep the other parts of the business moving, but we're also building these really strong foundations in terms of HR and, and culture, um, which is going to be really important, you know, as we get to series A, et cetera, and we hire a few more people, um, we've got to make sure those foundations stay strong. So if you think about it, if we did it the other way and we didn't hire uh, Bridie, you know, we would be sticking those things together ourselves. And I think we'd make it work kind of, but the foundations wouldn't be strong. You know, it'd be a building on a wobbly wobbly foundations. So, uh, and we know what happens when foundations aren't very strong. So we didn't want to get to that point, especially in the space that we're, we're in. So it was, it was a very critical hire for, for us. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think you've like explained it really well there because like, when I work with organizations that invest in a talent person, especially a talent and people leader quite early on versus the ones that don't, the big difference I see is, yeah, you get to a certain size and if you don't have that person early on, you're having to try and go back and retrospectively sort out a lot of stuff. It's exactly. a bit like technical debt. It's like people debt. You just have these blockages yep. and barriers yep. building up and then you have to go and unplug them. Whereas if you start out with that in place, like you, you're in a much better, much better place to like scale. Um, the culture and the people. Exactly. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, um, kind of wrapping things up now, Sancho. So, um, been really interesting debate. And I guess, yeah, if anyone listening that's, uh, wants to follow yourself or the Oliver Health journey, like what, where are you most active on, on social media? Where's best for people to, to follow? Yeah, definitely, definitely LinkedIn. I'm not very active anywhere else, uh, to be honest. So you can follow Oliva, O L I V A. Um, on LinkedIn and please do um, and feel free to reach out to me as well so not the easiest name to remember but Sancha S-A-N-C-A-R um, and you should be able to find me on on there uh, and yeah happy to to hear from people perfect well again thank you for coming to chat with me today it's been so interesting learning more about like mental health but also Lever, thanks, and yeah wish you all the best nice one Craig cheers Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.